0: Hi everyone and welcome to the Perma Podcast. I am James Prescott, your host. Welcome back to the show. Um, I'm really grateful you're all here. Um, I am really delighted today to welcome back an old guest from the show. Uh, one of my first guests from when this began back in twenty 2015, 2016. Um, when it had a different name, when the podcast had a different name. <laughs> um, and... Um, We've stayed connected, and now she's back because she has a book out. So, welcome to the podcast, Lisa Delay.
1: Thank you for having me, James.
0: It's really great to have you back. Um, Lisa hosts a podcast called "Spark My Muse," which is a great podcast. I will recommend you listen to. Um, and she has just released her first book, um, which is called "The Wild Land Within," and uh yeah it's a phenomenal book we're going to talk a bit about that today and yeah so I'm excited to talk about that um so Lisa just tell us a bit about what well, I bit about your journey and the story behind I mean this book and 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 all of your work
1: hmm. I'll try to be concise <laughs> <laughs> um, so I- I have been thinking about doing this book or something like it probably for more than 10 years. I went to um, graduate school, seminary, and studied spiritual formation. And that's really been the the thing on my heart. I've worked with prison inmates. I've worked in mentoring situations, taught classes. But my heart is always focused towards spiritual formation asking questions about how do we transform, how do we heal? And of course, those all began really as personal questions because of different you know, struggles that I went through in my own life and coming from a, um, a very strong Christian background where I was the a pastor's kid. And then kind of having to deconstruct that along the way. I've been wanting to uh, enter into that discipline in terms of contributing some kind of book or something. And then uh, this has just come out this year in 2021 with Broadleaf Books. It's The wild Land Within, Cultivating Wholeness Through Spiritual Practice. And it's more than just learning spiritual practices because we do talk a lot about um, core wounds and the afflicting thoughts, as Evagrius Ponticus, the spiritual father, um, would speak about Temptations as afflicting thoughts, repetitive thoughts. I really wanted to address some of the things that can be the most debilitating or stunt spiritual growth, and I wanted people to understand that when they delve into spiritual practices, it's not really um, as therapeutic in a relaxing sense as people might think. Spiritual practices help uh, kind of garden the the soil of our hearts and kind of harrow it for the planting of God's seeds, if you will. And so sometimes people do a spiritual practice, like a certain kind of prayer practice, hoping, I hope this helps me relax and find peace and connection with God, only to find that they find themselves feeling angry or bitter, old wounds come up and troubles come up, and then they feel like they've done something wrong. And really that's the practice doing its deep work.
0: Yeah, absolutely right. Um, that's been my experience too when I've done I've done a lot of spiritual practices um, mm-hmm. myself. Um, I'm part of a contemplative community um, and have been for a few years. And yeah, those, those practices do take you into yourself, and you do start mm-hmm. to feel things and experience things that you've been hiding from or burying or, or just not mm-hmm. acknowledged. Um, part of the spiritual journey or the personal journey of, of transformation is is often that things get worse before they get better.
1: Mm, exactly. Yeah. What practices in particular did you use that kind of dealt with that the most? I think
0: contemplation um, definitely is, is one silent, silent meditation, silent prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, those things have been really, um, really powerful for me. Mm-hmm. Um Things which have involved a lot of silence. <laughs> right, then
1: stuff comes up. Right, that's what yeah, I feel that's like.
0: right. Yeah, and just sitting in my sitting in myself and and creating space for things to, to rise up. Um, mm-hmm. I find that when 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 it's silent, I find it a lot easier <laughs> to to just mm-hmm. just reflect and just in a peaceful way. Things come up, but because I'm in a more centered place, I guess those things kind of in a more gentle way than they, than they would do. Um, Mm. the less noise there is uh, the better because there's plenty of noise inside.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's difficult. You can't get away from it because there still always is.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's there. It's all there waiting for you. Um, when you go into yourself. Yeah. Um, it's, it's deep work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, one of the things that I loved you talked about in the book, you spent a whole chapter on it, in fact, is, is talking about grief and loss and mm-hmm. different types of, of grief and loss. And that's something that I talk about a lot on this podcast and on my platforms and things, my um, mm-hmm. social media. Um, and I loved everything you said about it, that, you know, the different kinds of loss and grief that we experience um, mm-hmm. uh, and why it's important to acknowledge it and, allow ourselves to to feel it um and the power that it can have and then you shared quite a powerful story of your own so tell us tell us a bit about that story um and 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 kind of yours how you responded to 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 your experience of grief
1: well you're probably talking about um my father the the story about my father that's in the yeah, book is that's that right, yeah okay <laughs> um right so really my dad who at this point in my life, I was a uh, in my second year at university, and my dad, who was only forty four years old, had what some people call a stroke. But he was just kind of sucked out of my life really quickly, and um, it was completely devastating. And the thing is, is that he, if he had died at that moment um, when I was twenty, I might have been able to. Um, have a normal grieving process. But what happened was he remained alive for another 11 years. All of my twenties was a series of grief on a loop. And so Mm -hmm. there was a lot I was dealing with deconstructing and trying to understand what's the purpose of prayer and what is God's will. And there were so many things that came up that, uh, disrupted how I think about God or how I, um, question my own spiritual grounding and, and that sort of thing and I would have to over and over again sort of relive the loss when I would visit my dad or or something like that it would kind of hit me in the face all over again um, and so that was a very long very long decade of trying to process some of the you know most unpleasant, things you can have which is losing someone you love but not really losing them but losing them in every way that really mattered
0: that's right yeah the, the grief kind of of a different kind that you know the father that you'd had had essentially gone and mm-hmm. yeah that he was although he was still alive um there was a grief of losing who he had been um and the, i guess the constant reminder that you know that of that every time you saw him, and that's mm-hmm. that's difficult. Yeah, I understand that a little bit because my mother had an asthma attack when I was eight years old, which fundamentally changed who mm-hmm. she was because um, she lost her short-term memory entirely and wow. um, had to um, had to do a lot of work to get any of it back. Um, mm-hmm. Her long-term memory was was perfectly okay, and everything else was perfectly okay, but she so can no longer work and you know it just changed everything it was like a pivot point in my life and my family's life mm-hmm. um and it's the same it was there, was there was a grieving of which i only discovered in the last kind of 5 years that i started doing the work um there was a grieving of losing that person um mm-hmm. and losing the possibilities of, of what that could what that could have been um and it's a, it's a different kind of grief a different kind of loss but it's still very much a grieving experience, and it just alludes to what you to what you what you talk about um, in that chapter,
1: mm-hmm. right? And there's some things I go over in a little more depth because sometimes framing it with a label or better understanding mm-hmm. it helps. And what you have probably went through as well as I did is what is sometimes called ambiguous loss um, or disenfranchised grief. It could be both things and it can just be, you know, there's no greeting card or there's no public, um, thing that happens to help you lament and mourn and go through bereavement process. And we all have different points of ambiguous grief and, and disenfranchised, sorry, ambiguous loss and disenfranchised grief in our lives, but it helps to know that it can persist instead of, um, sometimes we're forced into thinking that, well, you know, eventually you're going to get over it. You know, you're going to, um, but there's pieces of grief that stay with you lifelong, I think.
0: Yeah, you're right. I think you always carry a bit of grief with you. It's Grief to me is more circular than than linear. It's, um, mm-hmm. and it evolves um, over time. It, it can change. For me, it's kind of evolved into connection. Um, mm-hmm but it's still grief and it's still you still get all the the signs of grief um that come up from time to time um anniversaries and other things like that right um, mm-hmm. those things are all are all really important and um what kind of what well, we talked a bit about spiritual practices a minute ago what are the what are the spiritual practices that kind of helped you in processing all of that and kind of navigating that wilderness?
1: Well, I really didn't come into learning spiritual practices that were that refreshing to me until after my father passed away completely. And I was in my 30s at that point. And I'd say what was really interesting about finding the writings of some of the contemplatives like Henry Nowen and Thomas Keating and Thomas Merton and Cynthia Bourgeau, some of those writings really helped sort of settle me down because I had really been praying um, most of the time in my life very uh, actively, but not really doing any listening and not doing any um, real silence because I didn't really view God in those terms and, and kind of somebody, maybe it was in my late 20s, said, you know, you can pray to God, but you can also listen you know, during your prayer too. And just kind of settling down into a deeper stillness or centered downness, uh, that began to really um, give me a chance to have a kind of grace where um, I felt loved doing just nothing. And that was new. That was new for me because a lot of us, I think in Protestantism, uh, um, try to do different things in in a kind of a vain way to get God's approval or feel more connected to God. And so I think a lot of those contemplative practices that were foreign to me that are much more part of Catholic tradition, Roman Catholic tradition and Eastern Orthodox um, Christian tradition, those were really not something that was known to me because I came out of such a small Christian sect that rejected a lot of those ideas outright or never uh, really fully engaged with
0: them mm. Yeah, that's right and it's interesting you pick those practices up only after I mean it was the same for me mm-hmm. honestly I only discovered discovered all these practices long after I'd lost my mother, Right. Yeah, really in the last I mean I discovered them initially at, my, uh, at a church I was part of and then mm. that church kind of changed and dropped all of that stuff completely and just shifted completely away from it and then when i when i left that church um i joined this community that i'm in now where um we do these things regularly we we, we have uh contemplative services Teze, um mm-hmm. silent prayer all of the contemplation all of it um including some of the practices that are in your book as well mm-hmm. um because there's at the end of each chapter that you you give us one of these practices to do um and there's mm-hmm. some really great ones in there um, Lectio Divina. I absolutely love that. I've done that mm-hmm. a few times. I actually did it with monks once, um, oh, cool. at a uh, monastery, and uh, it was really incredible. Um, um, yeah. I want to ask
1: you something about that, James. Uh, when you did Lectio Divina with monks, did you all read scripture out loud, or how did it? How did the movements work? It was. Um,
0: I think he read it out loud. I think we all read it out loud once.
1: Mm.
0: And then the second time and the third time and onwards, he read it out loud and we were just focused on putting ourselves in in the story mm-hmm. and visualising, you know, putting ourselves as a character in the, in the story. I think it was the story of when Jesus meets the woman, the woman who kind of touches his cloak mm-hmm. um, to get healed. It was that story, I think. Um and it was really amazing. You could start to taste and feel and you know, even hear the sound of, of of what was happening as you started to really enter into it and it was it was a really intimate experience. Um mm. yeah, I remember it well.
1: Yeah. There's one experience I had with uh similar to what Henry Nouwen talks about when he saw Rembrandt's prodigal son a painting. And we had a painting like that right at school. And we did a Visio Divina. So like a sacred um, art, you know, looking at art in a sacred way, looking at the prodigal son story and reading it first, and then just kind of gazing on the painting for a long time and uh, maybe imagining ourselves as one of those uh, people in the painting. And what it, did i think for everybody has slowed everybody way 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 down so we could be reflective and thankful and and really kind of commune in a different way
0: yeah it's a really powerful practice when you do it properly um and it actually kind of woke me up i think really these kind of practices are what really oh i felt connected to 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 my faith the most because um like going backwards to go forwards, going backwards mm-hmm. to go deeper, you know, these mm-hmm. these older practices that have been around for, for a long time, but I felt more sacred and felt more um, intimate um, mm-hmm. than kind of what I'd been used to, which had been kind of evangelical Christianity and, you know, hand raising and clapping and all of that. And it, it felt so much more intimate than that. Um, it mm-hmm. felt so much more authentic, um, like you were having a real spiritual experience and um yeah absolutely so yeah have you have you had any experiences of 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 other spiritual practices that you talk about in the book and
1: well all of them i've encountered in one way or another that that have been powerful and so i that's why i wanted to include them like we were talking about Lexio divina involves reading a, a short piece of scripture and um praying with it and meditating on it and there's something about starting out with that concrete um Concrete, maybe a verse I'm already even familiar with, and then letting it change eventually into the fourth movement, which is just a restful waiting or um, sort of an expectant waiting. And that has really been what feels like food for the soul. Um, some of the other ones in here, like the welcoming prayer, is much more challenging. I find that my desire to want to control. You know, have agency, control things, even if what I'm assuming is control is just thinking about something and worrying it over and over, worrying about it. But the welcoming prayer asks us, invites us to really be accepting of reality as it is, to not spend extra energy worrying about things that we can't control, that we're truly handing all that over to God and really you're welcoming what is. And so that can be actually really difficult, of course, if it's a painful situation that you're going through. Um, you're not going to think, oh, I'm welcoming this, you know, but really we're just welcoming um, reality and we're giving up our desire to control it or to change it and allowing God to um, be what we have the most faith in instead of faith in our own um reasoning and puzzling things out when certain situations can be beyond our control.
0: Yeah. Yeah, they're often acts of surrender, aren't they, these practices? Really just kind of acknowledging that you're not in control. And, Mm -hmm. yeah, allowing yourself to connect with the divine and also to connect with what's within you um, Mm -hmm. um, and acknowledging your kind of lack of control in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's like I said, it's, it's deep work. I do love the metaphor that he use in the book. Um, yeah, you know, the yeah you know, the wild land within the the, the wilderness, um, because that's definitely something that I resonated with in terms of my journey. That you know, that it's a journey through the wilderness, and um, that. But actually, also the sense that we're not alone on that. In the wilderness.
1: Right. Right. There's all these places of wilderness within us that are haven't been explored or in shadow that we don't know about. And sometimes we get I talk about core wounds in the book too. And sometimes our inner terrain has these places of core wounds. We might know a little bit about them or we might not be that aware. But what happens, you know, we get triggered or we sense a great discomfort within ourselves. And the book kind of opens up that territory for for further exploration. And a lot of times, if we're we're working on something, there's a lot of fear involved because we're not sure what we're going to find or not sure if we can handle it. And really, I try to have um, I try to recommend throughout the book, but it's worth mentioning here too, that if you're reading this book, I advise that people read it in groups or better yet with a trained spiritual director or therapist in case that they come across something that is just too painful. Um, they're not alone. They're literally not alone. The book serves as a kind of companion, but it can only go so far and we do need each other. Like, that's really what separates the self-help industry from the spiritual formation and growth Um work that that we do it's not helping ourselves it's really relying on god but also god through others and community to walk alongside us
0: yeah that's that's something i loved about the book it didn't didn't claim to be kind of all the answers didn't claim to be something that you just have on its own there was a real element of community and um acknowledging that we need each other um, and I do, I did love that part where you really addressed triggers and our responses mm-hmm. to triggers. That I haven't seen that addressed in many, in many books about spiritual formation, and mm-hmm. um, not in, and certainly not in the way that you that you did it. And it was it was really beautifully done. As somebody who gets triggered a lot, <laughs> yeah. um, and you're not alone it. in
1: that either. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, um,
0: that it was and someone who's actually figured out he's tried to figure out ways to process from my responses to triggers it, it did mm. it did really resonate and it did really uh, feel like a gentle support you know um yeah that was that was really powerful that that part so
1: that's good to hear yeah i think um i wanted to address fear really head on and talk about how um sometimes we even just fear Fear. You know, we'll try to run away from something in some way or um, have these kind of fight, flight or freeze instincts when it comes to even suspecting that fear or pain can be around the corner, we can kind of go into a mechanism. And what I was hoping to do is to kind of take the teeth out of fear, in the sense that we're not saying it's not there. And we're just we're working all the way through it with some courage, but um, we're not taking shortcut or circumventing the whole thing, but we're just kind of, yeah, you know, we're fearful as as mammals. Um, that's actually just part of our design. And if something has happened to us, we'll sort of be primed to be triggered in ways that uh, our fear comes to the forefront. We might not recognize it as fear. We might see it as anger or uh, betrayal, disappointment. But most of those things do go back to some kind of fear, for instance, fear of abandonment or you know, fear of pain. And there's a lot of things that for just about all of us, I think, um, as we befriend our fear, as we listen to it and ask it what it wants to tell us. There is a way to kind of journey into those tougher places with with more comfort, but also just with more insights too.
0: Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah, and yeah, and I mean that's that's the thing about I think about this book; it, it covers so many perspectives. Um, there is a big element of history in the book as well, and because part of the deconstruction transformation journey is kind of decon. Decolon- decolonizing and kind of unlearning um things up patterns and ways of thinking that people brought up with western christianity and you go you go into a lot of detail about the history of western christianity and um and one of the things that stood out for me about that part was the, the links to the roman empire and how how mm-hmm. Yeah, the similarities. <laughs> uh, right, and some of the right. language that we use is still very reminiscent of that, and um, that really did ring true.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I I wanted to talk about the land within, but then I had to kind of describe the influences, which is kind of if you're if you're using the analogy, there's different uh, terrain within this inner world, and it has. Largely been from the influences in our life, most of which we can't control. Like I, you know, you or I can't control where we were born or what um, different religions have affected our life until we have the ability to choose. Of course, like if I was born in a Muslim country, I would probably be Muslim, and you know, you you don't get control over that. So some of these influences are already set at birth, and some of them. Some of the qualities in our inner land get um, formed through trauma, through experiences, through education, uh, associations, all different sorts of things have their effect. But what I was really trying to do was kind of have a more bird's eye view and zoom out so that we could see that whatever we think of as Christianity or even just spirituality is handed down to us from some other place, some Foreign, in distant place, but is a particular kind of thing. And in the scope of Christianity in the world and Christianity in 2,000 years of history, uh, there is a lot of different voices there. And so occasionally we think uh, that Christianity is sort of made up of the voices that we hear the most often and the loudest. Oh, one other thing, too, with um, talking about empire – Roman Empire and theology is this idea that when Jesus came and he had his ideas about God and spiritual matters, he was an an oppressed person, a poor person oppressed by an occupying government. And what Jesus was doing wasn't um, leveraging religion for power. It was really sort of the opposite and what has happened over the years, especially when the Romans um, took Christianity on as their state religion, is that it became a tool used for power and used to conquer people, uh, used to convert people, and and sustain power. And so, when we realize that we are inheritors of this sort of empire mentality, which has tainted and obscured. The kind of religion, the kind of theology Jesus was talking about, it can help us start to pare away some of what isn't truly of God. I think, which is anything that has to do with sustaining power and power over people.
0: That's right. Yeah, and yeah, and yeah, you're right. And and we see so much of that kind of empire mentality in, in, especially in America. The the Kind of evangelical, um, evangelical right, and um, yeah, it, and you know, evangelical Christianity, yeah. it's in the missionary impulse in all the language of empire, it? yeah, yeah,
1: mm-hmm. right, yeah, and I, I wanted to show so in the book, I really try to make it clear and take special pains to bring out the the stories, the theologies and spiritualities of people who are on the margins and tend to have been marginalized or oppressed by dominant culture and essentially empire theology. So in bringing out their stories, their spiritual journeys and their theologies, we can better understand the image of God in all different kinds of people, not just the people who look like us and have power like us. So their stories really in my opinion, are the gospel. The gospel comes from the margins. It doesn't come from seats of power. That's not what actually God is up to. That's what men are up to. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, gaining power and keeping power. But God is up to liberating the captives and and setting the prisoners free and helping the poor and the sick and the people with the least amount and the least amount of power, but also the least amount of resources.
0: That's right, you're absolutely right you know God is always in the liberation business um, and he's always on the side of the the oppressed and the outsider. He's never on the side of empire and power and and violence you know um yeah, absolutely, and it's really important that we all hear those stories, especially especially white people um who you know have that who have like me who have white privilege and um have been the beneficiaries of the system as it is um and have the most to unlearn and so for me reading those stories was really really Mm. helpful it was really good to unlearn a lot of things and to also learn a lot about a lot more about history and um you know the you know the, the actions of the protestants to kind of take away people's rights to their land and all of that kind of thing that was you know it's I recommend this to anybody who is trying to do the work of of that kind of work because um, we all need to be educated on that. And it's important to any journey of transformation.
1: Mm -hmm. Right. I, I think sometimes those voices or those stories are seen as other people's stories or they're seen as on the periphery, not particularly theology proper or systematic theology um in in the fullest sense, and instead they should, in my opinion, be uh suffused throughout all of what we're teaching when we teach about theology we're teaching not just about one or two sorts of people, but we're understanding the image of God in brown faces, black faces, you know all different types of people socioeconomically, and I think sometimes the The rules, in a sense, or the rules for systematic theology have been set by people with with money, with status, with power, with education, with male privilege. And so they're not necessarily even able to hear some of those other voices uh, unless enough people sort of change the situation, change the mood, change the algorithm, or change something so that those voices that are perceived as outside can be considered part of the whole orchestra. Still there?
0: Yeah, absolutely right. I agree 100%. Um, so um, the other thing that I, and there's again, there's a whole chapter on this, which um, again I think is so so important and I talk about a lot on this show again is, is naming our wounds. I think actually one of the chapters is called Naming mm-hmm. Our Wounds. And because I've always I've said this so many times that and unless we actually go into our our pain and we actually name it and we actually feel it and experience it, um, it will have power over us. And um and I always use that story of Jesus when he names um the demon and the possessed man, because in that culture, um, from what I've led to believe, when you name something you take power over it. And mm. I think that's a really really important metaphor and, and it, again it's another another thing that's really, really important that we all do is 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 name our wounds.
1: Mm-hmm. Right, right. I go into the three different core wounds in the book, and for a lot of us, uh, you know, we didn't have control when we were, you know, two years old and under. But some of those wounds that involve safety and security actually begin before we have kind of chronological memory really installed in our minds. We we are non-lingual and not remembering things. In a language based way. So, if, if anything happened that was fearful, which of course, I, I guess for babies, lots of things would be fearful, um, that you can feel unsafe or um, insecure in something about your environment, that can create a deep wound that's not very easily um, healed through just talking because it's really at this base. Um, bodily level. And I got a lot of insights from reading The Body Keeps the Score by Dr. Basil Vanderkolk. And it really showed me that to heal, we have to involve the body and the pain that's held in the body isn't really helped um, through talk therapy or something, which talk therapy can be very, very helpful. Um, but there are things that are just sort of offline. They're more... Um, Primal and more primal parts of the brain, and so safety and security really addresses those particular wounds. And then the next one, which I think we all suffer from because we all have had um, middle school and teenage years and felt awkward and and still do, uh, is the esteem and affection core wound, which can go really deep and be very pervasive for a lot of us in terms of wanting to feel accepted or. Wanting to uh, impress people with who we are and hoping that they love us for who we are. And the final core wound, which also I think affects everybody to a great degree, is the power and control one. We kind of talked a little bit about that during the welcoming prayer, but we always hope to control our lives. And we do different mechanisms when we feel that that's not going so well. We might obsessively think about something. We might, um, write a whole bunch of notes for ourselves so we remember things and we do all different sorts of things to kind of comfort and deal with that wound. But if we start to reflect on what these wounds are a little more deeply, we can see them pop up as they do in our lives and think, you know, what? I might be overthinking this particular situation because I have a core wound here and maybe I need to go and address that core wound instead of, I'm probably not ex- upset about what's happening right here, it probably reminds me of something else that's deeper, that's, that's part of a wound that I'm still dealing with.
0: That's right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And yeah, like you say, embodiment work is a very big part of this journey. Again, I've talked about that embodiment work, how being in our bodies and, and befriending our bodies and talking to them and having a relationship with them and with our wounds. Uh, and again, that's, I think that's another part of the book as well. Where you talk about befriending our our trauma and, um, and loss, you know, that, um, building relationship with our bodies and embodiment is a really, really important part of, um, of, of transformation. And, um, Mm -hmm. yeah.
1: What, what sort of things have you done that have been healing and through some sort of embodied practice or an embodied way of, of, um, approaching things? I think
0: for me, I think learning to, um, learn to do name my body as a person um mm. rather than a you're not a, rather a he rather than a, mm. rather than it so yeah and have conversations with my body as a person and listen listen to him mm-hmm. um and you know and it's really helped me to be more connected to myself more connected to my wounds more more connected to my intuition as well yeah. um a highly sensitive person it's also I think made me more sensitive <laughs> uh, it's mm-hmm. opened up sensitivity a bit which can be a good thing uh, sometimes but sometimes can be painful um uh yeah and it's it's been really really helpful and then alongside that doing internal family systems therapy which mm-hmm. is in a sense talking to parts of your brain and yeah. um yeah. Talking to wounds in your brain, talking to coping mechanisms in your brain, and personalizing them, and you know visualizing them, and you know naming them in a sense, and having a relationship with them, having meetings with them. Um, I have mm. a good therapist who who works with me on this and is an expert on this, who actually used to be a pastor himself, um, and all of those things together have really helped me with with this everything we're talking about, kind of befriending myself befriending my body befriending my wounds um and starting to listen to them and do a lot of work on them um it's helped me unlearn a lot of a lot of unhealthy things including including a lot of shame and stuff around sexuality from purity culture um Mm -hmm. yeah that's how that's all worked for me Um, Mm. um and it's it's really powerful work
1: right it it is um really interesting what you say about um uh, something that allows us to not just think, try to think our way out of things, but our body sort of has a different language, and and I think occasionally we just, especially in the Western world, we're very cerebral, and maybe this is from passed down from the Enlightenment age of reason. We can stay very cerebral and cut ourselves off from our body and our feelings, and and what our body's experiencing. And so, like you're saying, getting more sensitive. As you do embodied things, it's, it's kind of like because your body's coming back online and back into a, a kind of consciousness that is um, not typical for you, Then, then you do feel more sensitive and you do feel more vulnerable. And that's a really common thing that, you know, where we're not used to, if we're used to numbing pain, most of us. Numb pain in some regard, in some sort of way, because it's it's obviously because it's painful, (laughs) Um, (laughs) and we feel very overwhelmed with it, right? So we find these little mechanisms to shut off our bodily pain that's associated with trauma too, and we, um, you know, we try to let our brain handle it, and and we turn out um, sort of extra wounded because we're we're doing different mechanisms to to stay pain free when. That's not really how healing works. The healing works by journeying all the way through the pain. and and you're probably experiencing that as you uh, work with your therapist is that um, there's parts of yourself you didn't know, and then when you meet them, you you kind of find out why they're there. but also you're befriending all the different parts too,
0: yeah, exactly. yeah, and it, yeah, I recommend it to everybody that I know because it is such a powerful. It, the process is almost in a way um rewiring your brain
1: mm-hmm.
0: um and you can even i've even had times where i felt the energy in my brain um the part of my brain that i'm working on um i felt like a warmth um mm-hmm. in my head in that part of the brain i'm working on and felt the kind of movement of energy in my brain it's really incredible when it happens it's almost wow. like a meditation um in one sense and you're guided through it. I have a really good therapist who guides me through it really mm-hmm. gently and patiently. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, yeah, I, I'd recommend it to everybody because yeah, it's it's literally getting to know yourself and, and building a relationship with yourself. And, um, mm-hmm. it gives you, it gives you practices that you can use outside of therapy sessions because I've used, I've used this kind of model outside of therapy sessions.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and I've got to know myself. So it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's a really powerful, practice
1: can you explain what you mean by practice like can you walk us through one in sort of a generic yeah, way? i i'm curious
0: yeah, absolutely i mean i think it's just like like last night for example i i sat down in my bed before i went to sleep and i kind of closed my eyes and just because i know some of these managers now i can actually just have meetings with them and mm-hmm. listen to them and talk to them and um just build relationship, and you know, because you, you you can change the roles of different managers from ones that so ones that you've assigned your your brain is assigned to you in when you're a different age and because of some trauma, you can you can reassign them, you can change their role into something really positive. So there was one I was working on last night, which used to be a kind of defense mechanism kind of thing, um, mm-hmm. and has now become an encourager and uh, and advocate kind of part you know so oh. um ways to like so when i'm so instead of getting reacting when i have when I get when i get a certain trigger it just it might just gently encourages me or reminds me and i can just go and listen to it almost with my eyes closed and just kind of um and journal out what it's saying to me uh what he's yeah. part saying to me and i did that that's what i did last night and it was um it was really peaceful and it was really encouraging yeah
1: yeah, well, it's interesting because we, it changes how we we think about the brain working, and we don't always think that the brain is trying to help us out with extra thoughts or help us out when we get anxious. The, but the brain is trying to solve a problem for us. And what's interesting about what you do is calling out different parts of the brain to speak with and to understand. Like, what are you? What is it you are protecting me from? Or what purpose do you serve? It, it's kind of a fascinating way to to do that inner work because you're you're curious instead of afraid. You know, you're you're realizing that your your friend is your brain is your friend, and and it's trying, however it can, to allow you to have a better life. But sometimes things get off the rails, right? Uh, and yep. that's that's so interesting to have. Um, to befriend yourself in that way. It's kind of like getting to know a new person, you know, all over again. Um, and when that person is you, you, you realize that all the, the relationship building within yourself is really worth it because, because you're always being with yourself, right? You know, there's, there's going to be, you're going to be with yourself for years. So you might as well learn how to have the different parts speak to each other.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, and one of the big parts of that therapy is acknowledging that all these parts are, doing what they do because they want to help you because they want to protect you right. because they want to keep you safe they're not they're they're, they're on your side mm. um it's just that some of them think some of them think sometimes they think you're different a different age than you are i had one part one manager mm. who thought i was still 15 years old oh. and then i take him into the i take him into my frontal cortex where all my decisions are made and he and he realizes oh no <laughs> you're not um and um and and then actually when that happened that part changed how he looked really? changed who he was changed because he realized i wasn't who i was when that had, when that part had been formed so oh. um
1: what happened then, what was the transformation then
0: well he went from kind of i can't it was a long time ago now it's when i first started right. but it was huh um, I just remember him changing completely mm-hmm. um his body language and what he looked like and mm-hmm. um and then he was he was and then he understood why we needed to do things differently and we were able to have a conversation about what was helpful instead, what he could do instead that was better than what uh, he'd been doing. Yeah, um, that's great. Wow. And often these parts have exiles from versions of you when you were those that age. Mm-hmm. And you can you can meet with them, and you can you create this safe place in your mind where you where they can go, and mm-hmm. um, yeah, and it's uh, it's yeah it's it's I love it. I think it's wow, it's it's revolution revolutionary for me. Certainly.
1: Yeah, it sounds so different than uh, typical. You know, just tell me how you feel. I've been to places where the person will say, "Tell me how you feel," and you know. I don't even know how I feel sometimes it's so jumbled. And, uh, you know, the, que- the line of questioning doesn't take me anywhere that healing, it might bring up certain things, but I don't think it helps me integrate and, and reconcile things in the same way as, as the kind of thing you're talking about there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it is literally a form of therapy and it's, it's um, and, and, and yeah, we normally start our meetings talking about how I've been, what I'm feeling, what I've been experiencing, and that leads us into, okay, this might be this part doing this, and then we then we go into talking to a specific part, depending on where I am in my life. It's not like um, we don't decide beforehand which part we're going to talk to. It's uh, It depends on what's going wow. on. So it's, yeah, it's it's great. Um, and, it, yeah, it touches on a lot of what you said, in what you talk about in, in the book, you know, the naming of our pain and befriending our pain and, and all of that it, it it goes alongside of that um yeah it's um it's powerful um i mean what practices have you have you learned that have helped you befriend your your body and your your wounds
1: well the biggest one is probably an overarching um, change in the way i want to process things so when I do things that are contemplative. It's really slowing me down. So it's kind of not relying on images and words to help me work through something, but just sort of quieting myself down to sort of a different, uh, more receptive state, I guess you could say. And then from that state, I'm much more able to be reflective instead of reactive. And that helps a lot. I have for most of my early life i was just in like very reactive states and my parents were very um well they would just say i have a bad temper but what was happening is tons of yelling and tons of um, you know emotional and verbal abuse and that would put me in a state of fight or flight pretty much all the time and so my kind of mo my my go to for relating would often be out of a place of some sort of anger fear or some kind of reactionary kind of response it was really just my default and so I had to kind of go back through and be able to listen to myself better and that had a lot to do with finally slowing down enough and centering down enough in a place that doesn't require words to just find my bearings I guess you could say and still that helps me Um, I also do things like the the Jesus Prayer um where Jesus Christ have mercy on me a sinner I do that just to kind of find myself in the embrace of God um, and I repeat that at, until I feel it you know until I, until mm-hmm. it means something and I just kind of quiet down that way and I realize that you know my brain will kind of get in my own way and trip me up but if I allow myself to loosen the grasp and the hold on some of those things and just allow, I guess it's just being receptive to God's grace, which for me involves like I'm not trying anymore. I'm just waiting on God for, for whatever's next. And that in that ceasing to strive, I can be reflective and I can kind of find that, divine strength, you know, that doesn't come from me, but that comes from who I am in God and God's work in me. And from there, I can do things like be reflective or work on healing instead of just being reactive. And I'm I'm thankful that, I mean, this was a great reason to not have kids young because I was not able to uh, do anything like that until, you know, much more recently and so i think i it's made me a better parent and a better friend too
0: that's fantastic that's really great that you found that um yeah and especially Yale. i think that's a good point about you know waiting to be a parent and doing that doing that work first and finding those those practices first and Mm -hmm. sound like they're really having an impact so yeah that's amazing
1: yeah, I know I was telling somebody who was reading the book, um, who got triggered by the book, and I was saying, you know, that he put the book back down because he thought maybe he should go back to therapy first before he moved on through the book. And I, and at first I felt a little bit sorry that the book had caused that in, in him. And and then I reconsidered and I thought, you know, if if this book sends people to get help or to get therapy for what they need, then it's really done its job because everybody could benefit in my opinion everybody could benefit from therapy unless you've somehow escaped any wounds and and pain in your life and suffering if you've escaped all that perhaps you don't need to go to therapy but so far i haven't met anybody like that
0: Mm. yeah absolutely yeah exactly and that's right yeah there's no substitute for therapy and yeah and that's it that's what naming this stuff does and, and confronting this stuff does it may it may lead us into therapy and that's a good thing if we need to if we if it sends us to therapy and gets us that professional support that that we might need that that's a positive thing um yeah 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 um what would be i guess the the core message that, that you want to commune that you want people to get through reading this book
1: well there's there's several things mostly just an awareness that there's a lot that is in our interior world that makes us who we are that we probably haven't paid attention to or even know about so kind of bringing that up in the first place is one of the goals I guess um, traveling with other people on our spiritual journeys is another one, but also decentering um, whiteness or empire theology, decentering that so that we can get a better view of the Imago Dei in all of us. And I really hope that people go back and get into the book, not just read it once and put it away, but it really invites and asks a lot of you. It has you um, ask yourself questions through the whole thing, and it is meant to. Be transformative and it might take you through some painful things, but those are the things that God has um, decided you're ready for. If you're reading the book and you feel that you've been led to do that, then God is willing and able and ready to walk with you as you process some of those difficult things. And when you do it with a sense of God's presence, instead of experiencing your trauma as disconnected from everyone and as alone, You go back and you look at some of those issues again, but this time with the presence of God right in mind, right in front of you. It really is a different experience, and I believe that is what helps us become whole and integrated as people. And it's not like we ever get there in our journey. We're always striving towards more wholeness and more healing. But hopefully, the kind of wholeness and healing practices and and, um, directions that we take in our life help god's love to overflow from us to be able to help others
0: yeah and i, I highly recommend it to everybody it, it was yeah it was transformative for me uh, and inspiring for me and i'll definitely be reading it again and using some of the practices in it so Thank um you. And it's available now the wild land within cultivating wholeness through spiritual practice by lisa delay or lisa colon delay um is on the cover. So Mm -hmm. I highly recommend that to everybody. Um, Where can people connect with you online, Lisa?
1: Well, the best place is probably my website, which is sparkmymuse.com or lisadelay.com. They both go to the same place. I do a weekly podcast that comes out on Wednesdays. And uh, I also have Patreon for people who want to support and get a little more extras behind the scenes. And that's at patreon.com forward slash muse. I'm also on Twitter, probably the, more than the other social media outlets, so I, I always really appreciate when people reach out or if anybody has questions. And I have on June 2nd at 7.30 p.m. and Eastern Time, there will be a book discussion about the book. So even if someone hasn't read the book yet, um, I invite them to come out and hear about some of the discussions and the readings, and it should be a really neat kind of community connection time
0: fantastic fantastic so uh check all those things out um and again listen to the podcast um spark my muse it's great so many great guests on there um and uh um it's one of my favorite podcasts so check it out um thank you for for being a guest it's um it's always an honor to have you here
1: yeah it's been great to talk with you and thank you so much for reading the book and having an interest in it
0: Oh you're welcome. it's um it's a great book and yeah recommend it to everybody. So um, thanks for listening everybody.